0: On August 21st, 2009, the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini, called on all Muslims in his country and in neighboring countries to intensify their preparations for the coming of their Messiah, the Islamic Messiah, known as the Mahdi, or the, the hidden Imam. This is their version of Messiah who will come, they believe, and bring peace to the world, I found it interesting in my research to discover that many Islamic scholars are not sure how long he will reign. Many of them believe this hidden imam, that is, he's hidden until he'll make his appearance in the Middle East, believes that when he steps forward to reign, he will rule the world for seven years. Now, we Christians also believe in the coming of a world leader who will offer peace in the Middle East and attempt to rule the world for seven years, right? But we've learned that you really wouldn't want to follow him. He will be the final, ultimate deceiver. But these are fascinating days to be a Christian, aren't they? All you have to do is go online or read the newspaper or watch uh, a little television news and you pick up rapid, or the History Channel, I'm going to throw that in there, and you pick up rapidly on this growing fever over apocalyptic events, this fervor. Over the future, coming disasters, whether it is Nostradamus and and one more revelation of his that, that continues to sell magazines at Harris Teeter from what I can tell, as he predicts you know terrible things, or maybe it 's the Mayan calendar which has garnered a lot of attention with its uh, ending of its cycle at the year two thousand and twelve or a Chinese oracle telling of of apocalyptic events to hit the planet in the future. The fever is definitely growing. If there was ever a time in human history when people around the world are hoping for and anticipating somebody who will come on the scene and make a global difference, it is today like none other. In fact, the election of our own president and probably the setting of the stage for every president who will be elected in the future will have to somehow convince the public that they can offer not just leadership, but that key word, hope. And not just hope for America, but a leader who can step up on the stage and offer hope to the entire world. Because everybody now is thinking globally We are all more aware of our responsibility globally, whether that's second graders who are now being taught to go green and save the planet, to leaders who are as concerned about CO2 emissions as they are stock prices, to religious leaders who are discarding key doctrines to somehow bring the world to resolution in the religious environment and bring some kind of peace. What a great time to be a Christian. What a critical time to have the answer and what security to have objective inspired revelation of exactly what will indeed happen on earth during these apocalyptic times that will in fact come and who will be affected and how you can escape being affected by it and more importantly the sovereign king in whose hand it all moves forward the predicted truths of Christ's second coming happen to form the greatest anticipation of all of human history. And that is not exaggeration. From the fall of Adam to the second coming of the second Adam, when Christ sets up his kingdom, that signature uh, uh, fulfillment has been since the beginning of time been the long-awaited event of human history, redemptive history. When the true king will receive the ruling scepter, Genesis 49. When God will establish the throne of David's greater son, 2 Samuel 7. When that son will rule the earth with a rod of iron, Psalm chapter 2. When the nations will be judged, Joel chapter 3. When the returning king will defeat his enemies and and Jerusalem will become the center of Messiah's kingdom. Zechariah chapter 12. When the angels will gather the living unbelievers for judgment. Matthew 25. When Jesus Christ will visibly, physically descend in holy majesty to judge and to rule the world. Revelation 19. No wonder the second coming of Christ is considered the culmination of redemptive history. Now, even though the average Christian knows more about the first coming of Christ, his first advent, the second coming of Christ is actually the focus of much more Scripture. The Bible isn't silent on the subject. In fact, Christ's second coming to rule and reign on planet Earth is emphasized in at least 17 Old Testament books. Jesus Christ referred to his second coming 21 times. In fact, seven out of every ten chapters of the New Testament mentions his second coming. Even more than that, for every one verse that refers to Christ's first coming, there are eight verses that refer to his second coming. This is, as it were, the focus, this fulfillment of much of Scripture, and the details of His second coming are astounding. We have arrived at that point in our study of John's revelation, where we are given a sevenfold description of this climactic event as Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth. Revelation chapter 19. Let's look at the description of that event, picking it up where we left off in our last study at verse 11. You'll notice right away in this description that there is first an introduction. Look at verse 11. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. Now, when I read that, the first thing I wanted to know was, why those names? Why those? Of all the ones that you could choose, in fact, we've sung many of his names today, or we've heard sung, the I Am. Many of them could be used. Why faithful and and true? Why not other names given to him over the ages of revealed Scripture? How about the Lord Jesus, Acts chapter 7, verse 59? Or, or Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 1, verse 1? Or Christ, the Son of God, John eleven twenty seven. 27? How about the Lamb of God, John 1, 29? Or the King of glory, it's a good one. Psalm 24, isn't it? Why not the Alpha and Omega, Revelation chapter one verse eight, or the Lion of Judah, Revelation five verse five, or the hope of glory, Colossians one twenty seven? Why not the Bread of Life, John six thirty five, or the everlasting God, Isaiah forty verse twenty eight? What about the Word of Life, 1 John one one, or the High Priest, Hebrews six twenty nine? What about the Good Shepherd, John ten, eleven? Or the mighty God, Isaiah nine, verse six. Or how about this one? The Savior of the world. First John four. That just sort of says it all. And on and on and on. Why not one of them? It occurred to me that perhaps it's because none of them can operate unless he keeps his word, and if his word is indeed the truth. What kind of Lord would he be if he didn't tell the truth? What kind of prince would he be if he cannot defeat his foes? Or what kind of high priest could he be if he could not sanctify forever his beloved? Or what kind of king would he be if, if he can't return to, to assume ownership of the throne? And so John is saying, listen... As he comes, you need to understand he is faithful and true. He keeps his promise, and his promises are all the truth. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a former pastor who wrote prolifically, illustrated this point in his commentary on Revelation as he recounted a woman, a believer, who was on her deathbed talking to her family and friends of her assurance of <laughs> salvation. This came home to me as I studied it this week. Many of you know my mother-in-law passed away. And one of the things that I remember her saying in the hospital bed the day she died was, I just want to go home and be with Jesus. That kind of assurance for those who genuinely believe in Christ is a wonderful thing to observe. Well, this woman was in the hospital. And a young minister happened to visit her on one occasion. And he was unconverted. There are many of them in the ministry who are unconverted. Unconverted. He had never seen anybody quite so sure of her future, Barnhouse wrote, with the Lord, and thought he should warn the dear soul against such dogmatism. Well, she answered him well as she said, uh, Son, if I should awake in eternity to find myself among the lost, the Lord would lose more than I would. He asked, well, how's that? And she responded, well, I might lose my soul, but he would lose his good name. Isn't that Good. So true. If God is for one moment and with one person unfaithful and untruthful, he has lost everything no matter what name you give him. And so the Bible opens this vision. And John is effectively saying, I saw heaven opening and the sovereign Lord descending just as he promised. He has kept his word. He is faithful and true. Secondly, I want you to notice immediately in verse 11, not only Christ's introduction, but his transportation. John writes, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it, and behold. I love that. It's as if John is saying, would you look at that? Look at that. A white horse and the Lord riding on it. Now to John, this was significant, much more so than to us. The white horse was clearly symbolic of a victorious general or emperor, the Roman Senate, in fact, granted Julius Caesar the right and, and his request uh, upon his victory in North Africa to, to, to ride in a chariot through the streets of Rome pulled by white horses. During victory celebrations like these, Rome would decorate everything they could in the city with, with all white, white fabric, white flowers, white banners white clothing, juvenile of the Roman poet living in the times of John the Apostle wrote that during these times Rome would become literally translated a city in white. The citizens would pour out of their homes and their businesses to throng behind their victorious Caesar as they celebrated his victory. You can see the obvious picture, can't you? While a horse a white horse is symbolic of a victorious emperor. I also believe he will literally ride a white horse through the skies and rein in on, Mount of, on the Mount of Olives and dismount. More on that in a moment. The third description of this climactic event could be summed up in the word vindication. Look at the latter part of verse 11. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. Let that settle in. He is waging war. This is the actual battle of Armageddon. We'll take one more look at it in our next study together. So Jesus Christ is not just bringing a choir. He's bringing an army. The armies mentioned a little later in this paragraph are an awesome sight to see as, as Christ... And his church will come in glory to judge the world. The New Testament book of Jude, in fact, verse 14, repeats an old ancient prophecy. You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis, but then you won't find it in there because it doesn't record it. Enoch living during the days of of Adam. He was the great, 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 great grandson of Adam. And Enoch prophesied... We didn't read it there, but we read it later in the book of Jude, that little one chapter letter just before you get to Revelation. And Enoch is making this prophecy. He says, the Lord will come with thousands, many thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all. Imagine only seven generations removed. I have a picture of four generations, all living. Imagine seven generations, Enoch is prophesying not of the first coming, but of the second coming. Zechariah prophesied that Jehovah would one day come and stand on the Mount of Olives as he defeats all the unbelieving nations. And Zechariah prophesies, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with him. Zechariah chapter 14. By the way, this is a wonderful verse to show your Jehovah's Witnesses, contacts, neighbors, uh, co-workers comparing Zachariah's prophecy of chapter 14 of God standing on the Mount of Olives with Christ, uh, Matthew 24 and 25, who fulfills the prophecy literally standing on the Mount of Olives. Paul wrote of this same event. When he sent to the Corinthian church the news that they would one day judge the world. That's a fulfillment of Enoch's old prophecy recorded in Jude 14. The Lord will come with many thousands to execute judgment upon all. This is a reference to Christ and his beloved who are coming in the second coming to reign. And the judge, the apostle Paul, also wrote of this coming glorious day of Christ's revelation of the world as sovereign Lord and ruler. When he wrote this to the Colossian church, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. He's referring to the second coming. Colossians three four, Jesus Christ and his beloved will be forever without question vindicated John records another description of this scene we'll just call it perfect vision perfect vision of Christ verse 12 and his eyes are a flame of fire that is his holy piercing vision into the heart of mankind is part and parcel of his holy judgment nothing will escape his notice these eyes that Once reflected tenderness and joy as he cradled a little child in his arms. These eyes that reflected compassion when he met the distressed... These eyes that communicated sadness toward that denying disciple across the courtyard as their eyes met, these same eyes that communicated forgiveness to that same disciple that he met after his resurrection, these eyes that wept over the city of Jerusalem that rejected him, these eyes that wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus, these eyes will now flash with the fire of holy judgment. Now, the world might try to say, How can you judge us? You weren't there. You didn't see me. You don't know what's in my heart. You didn't see me do anything wrong. Well, the truth is implied here, certainly in other scriptures. He comes with omniscient, penetrating vision, He is an eyewitness of every sinner and every sin. He knows the heart of every man and woman, boy and girl. He has all of the information necessary to render a just verdict, and the just verdict will be guilty. The next word then that sums up John's description of Christ's second coming is the word domination. Notice further in verse 12, And on his head are many diadems. It's plural. It might confuse you as to how you can wear more than one crown. I mean, wouldn't that be a little awkward? How do you balance them all? Well, the diadem was a crown of royalty. In fact, Esther received one uh, when she became queen of Persia, Esther chapter 2, verse 17. But a diadem was really nothing more than than an elaborately designed headband, typically about two inches wide, made of beautifully embroidered cloth. Jewels could be attached to it or other insignia. In fact, excavations have given us ample pictures and reliefs to sort of clear up the confusion where John says that he's wearing many diadems. We have excavated carvings of one Assyrian king. He's wearing his elaborate diadem. It's embroidered probably with gold thread and Cascading down and off his shoulder is a beautiful red ribbon with gold embroidery. Uh, must have been a beautiful, a magnificent sight. We have uh, another picture or relief. This one of a Persian king. Sovereign, he's wearing his diadema, his diadem. Just a red headband and, and uh, a plume of green cascading down his back. I especially liked his hairdo. This is every father's dream of a son-in-law. You know, I think I saw that guy at the mall, actually. I'm pretty sure. All right, enough. All right, I got one more. I won't make fun of this guy, even though he is wearing red lipstick. Um, This is the typical picture in the mind of John's readers of a Roman emperor. This is the diadem. It's simply embroidered cloth. and, uh, And he would wear it, in fact, we have historical accounts, for instance, of Ptolemy the sixth, in the year 164 BC when he defeated Antioch. He took the king's diadem and he put it on his head with his. He was the king of Pharaoh. And so now he had two. It was his way of saying he was sovereign over Egypt and over Asia. Uh, We know that King David, when he defeated one Gentile king, he took his diadem and put it on his head along with his. So when John says that Jesus Christ is wearing many diadems, what he's basically saying is he's conquered every kingdom. He rules over them all, and many of them probably had insignia of the nation they led, and so it's as if it's saying to the world, I rule over every kingdom. Magnificent sight it will be as we see him. Further evidence of Christ's total domination is the next phrase in verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Some would suggest that this blood is a memorial of his own blood. I don't believe that simply because this is a picture of judgment not a redemption. And I really believe it even more than that because Isaiah removes all doubt in chapter 63, as God is quoted, saying, speaking of this coming event, listen, he's asked the question, why is your apparel red, R-E-D, like the one who treads in the wine press? God answers, and I quote, because I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart. Imagine that terrifying. scene. in other words, the scene portrays the awful day of judgment specifically the battle of Armageddon, where Christ is seen victorious and with the blood of his enemies literally splattered on his garments. Now, the average person on the street, talk of God like this would shock them. In fact, it would anger them. Who does he think he is? You see, they don't understand that the unbelieving world, according to the apostles and scripture, is, as Paul wrote it, the enemy of God. Enemy. It's not in neutral. The world is in trouble. Can you imagine God as your enemy? The world would say, no problem. They've been been deceived by the God of this world, that they are okay. As one man told me, you know, everything between me and the man upstairs is okay. You know, I know God. He wouldn't hurt a fly. What do you do about this? The truth of Scripture is that he is storing up his wrath until these days when he uniquely pours it out like some unstoppable tsunami. The blood will flow like a river as enemy soldiers literally explode at his word. Because they refuse to wear the blood of Christ, as it were, on their heart, Christ will wear their blood on his garments. And the world will be utterly horrified at the unrelenting, unmerciful vengeance of God unleashed at last. This is what Paul warned the Athenians 1,900 years ago. In Acts chapter 17, where he said, listen, everybody needs to repent. Why? Why? Because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. And that day has come. Paul will go on to say that it is specifically the God-man, Jesus Christ, who acts out the judgment of triune God. And this scene we're studying is that moment. Now, if you have any remaining question, who this is, who this sovereign, returning, vengeful warrior is. John leaves no doubt with another name that he provides. Look at the last part of verse 13. John writes "And his name is called the what? The word of God. The logos of God. The spirit of God through John Introduced us to this expression in John chapter 1. You probably know that text. In the beginning was the, the Word, and the Word was with, and the Word was God. The Lagos, the same word used here. In the beginning was the Lagos, the expression of the triune God. Now here the one coming to rule and reign, fulfilling the prophecies that Jehovah will come to the Mount of Olives, the one who is coming to defeat the enemies and reign on planet Earth is the same Lagos that John said earlier was born among us and we beheld as reflected glory as it were, the glory of the Father. And as many as received that expression, that truth, that Lagos of God, to them he gave the right to become sons or children of God, right? It's interesting as you study the word, you have the written word of God, John five thirty nine, you have the spoken word of God, John three thirty four, and you have the living word of God, John one one, and Revelation nineteen. Your Bible is the written word of God. The gospel that you deliver to your world is the spoken word of God. Your Savior is the living word of God. So you have the written word authored by the living word empowering you to deliver the spoken word to a world that will one day give an account before this Lagos. this word of God, the living word, the visible expression. Consider the fact that this Jehovah who is coming back to reign, he is Yahweh in the flesh. He is the embodiment of triune God, Colossians 1.15. Now, there's another word that came to my mind as I studied this paragraph. For the world, it's going to be very different than for us. In fact, for the world, it'll be all terror and bloodshed and horror as the judgment of God is unleashed, the horror of the reality in the unbeliever's mind that he had indeed refused the testimony of creation and he worshiped a stump to those who'd taken the mark, worshiping the false Messiah, to those who refused to repent even though they knew the disasters of the last seven years that we've studied were from the hand of God and they refused to repent, surely that's not God. Now the horror of the reality of their disobedience and their unrepentant hearts and their hatred of God will come out. But for the believer, it's a different story. We're not on earth we're coming from heaven with the lord to reign with him and the word that comes to my mind as i go back to this text as it relates to you and me it is the word exhilaration exhilaration look at verse 14 and the armies which are in heaven again we're already there clothed in fine linen white and clean we're following him on white Horses. This is the same clothing mentioned earlier in chapter 19 of the Bride of Christ. This is the church focused here in the lens of Scripture. The plural word translated armies may very well indicate distinct groups. Many believe they will include resurrected Old Testament saints, uh, tribulation martyrs, Uh, Certainly the angels will be among the hosts of heaven that come. But the clothing of the riders of white horses is what John focuses on. This is the clothing of the church. Fine linen, white, and clean. See, this is a message of triumph for the church above all. Uh, in John's day, the, the, the church, you remember, was muddied. The church was trampled. The church was was persecuted. The church was tormented. The church was rejected. John might have wondered how much it would be able to move along with all of the persecution now unleashed against it. But here he sees the church victorious numbering in the myriads, returning with their leader, their shepherd, their Lord, Christ. But don't miss it here in this exhilarating scene. Like Christ, we, the church, already with them, are returning on what? White horses. Now, is it just figurative language? Certainly, John uses figurative language. In fact, he uses it in verse 15 to speak of the word coming out of the mouth of the Lord like a sword. But it's interesting to me that John has stated twice now regarding our transportation by means of divinely provided white horses. This is the transportation of a conquering king. But notice this. Even in the days of John, the army did not ride on white horses, only the emperor or the conquering general did. That's why John wants us to get the picture. Not just the conquering general, our emperor. We will be writing like him. Our emperor has provided the same transportation for his conquering beloved. In fact, in this paragraph, one of the few differences between the emperor and us is, is, is that our garments are not splattered with blood. They're white and clean. Why? Because Christ will do all the fighting. One word. It's his word alone that will defeat the enemy armies. He does the fighting and it's over in a moment as we'll see, but I guess we, get, we come along and we're just cheering. We're, we're, we're shouting. The imperfect tense of the verb translated in this verse, verse 14, to follow him, provides a little more insight in this graphic picture of Christ who is this celestial warrior seated on his white horse and his armies seated on white horses as well are following after him right behind them, as we with him gallop through the skies to encounter the enemy and to reign to set up his kingdom in victory as he dismounts on Mount Zion. Now beside the fact that we have no reason to view these armies riding horses as figurative, I also thought more of it and I wondered... Isn't it true that no matter how many forms of transportation we've invented, no matter how fast they go, whether it's a rocket ship to outer space or some fast car, some medium fast pickup truck, there's nothing quite so majestic and stirring as a horse in full gallop. I've been on the Autobahn Overseas doing 100 miles an hour and I can remember a motorcyclist passing me and he made me look like I was, I was doing 100 miles an hour. Like, like I was standing still. But that wasn't majestic. That was just irritating. <laughs> In the center plaza of Las Colinas, Texas. I've mentioned this before. Thought of it again here. My wife and I saw a couple of years after it was finished what has become the world's largest equestrian sculptor in the world. Nine bronze-like statues of Mustangs fashioned in various poses, some in full gallop, and they're galloping across a pond of water. And fountains are designed to spray up water wherever the hooves of these horses make contact. It's stunning. The rancher that sold the property to uh, Las Colinas. In fact, he wanted to create a city and put in the very middle what he wanted to be a tribute to the horses that used to range wild on his property. And so those Mustangs are right there. You can go online and look them up. Stunning sight. People come from all around the world. Is it because they're faster than anything they've ever seen? No, there's just something stirring about a horse and a rider and gallop, full gallop. Imagine what John sees. Imagine what he hears. Have you ever heard horses galloping? I've shared with you the 20 acres behind our home. They used to graze thoroughbreds. And, 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 and when we'd hear them galloping, it, it'd rumble right here. We'd stop, no matter what we were doing, and we'd look out the window and watch 15, 20 thoroughbreds gallop across that pasture John is seeing millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of white horses and horsemen galloping through the heavens following their emperor as he comes to planet earth. What a stirring sight. The king is coming and with him. His saints. Now, my seventh and final word from this description is the word exaltation. Notice verse 16. John describes our emperor, our conquering commander, this way on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The Greek construction could be better understood, and on his robe, even his thigh. He has a name written. The Lord isn't bearing his thigh. What John is describing is the robe of our Lord, and it is monogrammed, and it is wrapped like a rider would be in some kind of ceremony, and where it's wrapped around his body and on his thigh is that amazing monogram, stirring. It says, King of kings and Lord of lords. The thigh was the place where a mounted warrior's sword would normally be strapped. The only weapon our Lord brings is the only one He needs, the power of His Word. Why? He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. The only other time this expression appears together is in Revelation 17, and it's reversed, Lord of lords and King of kings. These two titles are separately attributed to God in other parts of the body. Here they are both given to the second person of the Godhead, once again establishing his deity beyond any doubt. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. You know the Caesars were fond of using these titles, Basilus and Curios. They like to attach it to their name. But the monogramming on this robe simply states there is no more supreme king than Christ. I had a lady come up to me who's an equestrian. She rides professionally. She said, Stephen, as I was studying this with you, it occurred to me, you know, whenever we're in some kind of ceremony, we always wrap our robes or whatever we have so that our title is at our thigh so that the ones we're riding toward can read it. So Jesus Christ is riding toward earth and everyone can see and they shall read king of kings and Lord of lords. Isn't that a wonderful thought? Everyone will see it. And we with him as we thunder from heaven. What a procession this is going to be. What what majesty and glory. What a stirring sight. But it occurred to me as I studied this, and I'll wrap it up with this, how obvious it is in this scene that Jesus Christ is continuing to lavish his grace upon us, his beloved. We're here. Puny little us. And he's allowing us to ride and act as if the victory was ours. Indeed, in him it is. He could have said, just hang back here and let me go take care of it and that I'm bringing in. No, no, I want you to ride just like me. The victory is ours. I thought, you know, if if we were God, we would ride a stallion, and everybody else would ride a scooter (laughs) or walk to distinguish among us, not him. Not him. What incredible grace. We, We are faltering Failing, stumbling, finicky, cowardly, limited, faithless, selfish, impatient. All of that is long past and our glorified state, and here's his grace again. We, as members in this triumphant procession, will all gallop forward just like our King of kings and Lord of lords. We will be with him. We're with him. And in his grace, he says, We faltering, failing, but redeemed ones, you become my co-regents. How about that? I mean, imagine. Imagine the president-elect and his entourage of SUVs coming up to your house. And he gets out and he goes and he knocks on your door and he says, look, when I'm going I'm, I'm to be inaugurated. When I'm inaugurated on the Capitol steps, I want you to be with me. Me? Yeah, you. Well, okay. Can you imagine the Prince of Wales saying, listen, When I'm crowned king of Great Britain, they're going to have this amazing celebration and and the ceremony and the pomp and the glory and the jewels and and cameras. People around the world will be watching this. What if the Prince of Wales said to you, and when that happens and I'm seated on my throne, I'm going to pull up another chair and have you sit right beside me. You okay with that? You would say what? Me? Me? Can we miss this here? That we are coming with a sovereign if we don't say, me? Yes. You and me. And this is a million times greater than that. When the king comes and the Lord invites us to mount up. <laughs> Listen, the last time I rode a horse, I fell off. <laughs> Not this time. Not this time. Neither you. Maybe there's going to be some riding lessons for us between now and then. <laughs> I don't know. But the king is going to say, Mount up. It's time to return as promised. And you're coming with me, and you will be with me. What incredible thrills and majesty and. Ceremony and glory and excitement and security and opportunity awaits us as Christ in his glory takes the throne and all of us His saints reign with him in his kingdom. Paul is writing to Titus of this event and he says this, We look forward to this wonderful event when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He's talking about this event. And we look forward to it. We should think of it every day. No wonder Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said there are only two days in my calendar. Only two days. Today. And that day. Referring to the second coming. There are only two days that occupy my mind today and that day. Father, because we have met today, because we have sung your truths, because we have studied your word, which is faithful and true, the written word inspired by the living word cause us to surrender everything of us, deliver to our world the spoken word and to live in light of the day when you, the living word, will return and we with you. What amazing glory. What amazing grace. When we behold what all the world will see and from our perspective of coming from heaven to earth. Wow. Cause us, Lord, today to thank you for your grace and to be a little bit more like Luther who occupied himself with today but always thought of that day.